Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast on this Easter weekend. But of course, I haven't been Eastering, I've been Marxism. And uh, I've been to the Marxist conference, which is on at the moment at Melbourne University at the... Uh, Old Arts uh, Building and beside it the uh, West, um, uh, Arts West Building, if you know uh, in the enormous Melbourne University campus, only getting bigger. Uh, but that's that's the place. You can find it on the map. Uh, there's still a couple of days to go, Saturday and Sunday. It's a big affair. Lots of people there, lots of joyous revolutionaries in the making, baby revolutionaries. Anyway, not that I'm a baby. Uh, there's uh, I've got a long memory. Uh, today uh, we're going to cover a couple of things that uh, are ongoing and uh, still uh, lingering in the mind. First up, last week uh, I played an interview I did with uh, someone from the Australian uh, Conservation Foundation. We were talking about the safeguard mechanism that was brokered by the Greens with Labor to um, cap emissions and uh, we were discussing what it was about, you know, what are the mechanisms, what were they talking about, what did they actually agree on and uh, the Australian... uh, Conservation Foundation's belief is that uh, they expressed a belief that uh, um, it's better than nothing. You know, it's the old adage, the old Irish adage, it could be worse. But um, uh, uh, because I've been to the Marxist conference, so there was a a fascinating and fabulous uh, presentation by Jack Mansell uh, at the Marxist conference exactly on this topic uh, his talk was entitled NGOs Getting Paid to Preserve the System and he is talking first uh, uh, in this uh, discussion about how Bob Brown had renounced his life membership of the ACF over just this issue. So I thought I would uh, play it to you because it's a standout uh, conversation about how uh, a lot of stuff is being done to... Uh, it Now it's been uh, uncategorically established that there is a climate crisis, the next move for all those corporations and the running dogs are to actually say, yes, yes, climate change does exist, but now we're doing something while at the same time maintaining the status quo, which is the um, very uh, obvious methodology that corporations have uh, and governments 
uh, and lots of people who have power have uh, lots of tricks in their little bag uh, to uh, uh, throw delaying tactics. They're called delaying tactics, effectively, so that uh, people can sort of work it out. Except, of course, we are in a disaster at the moment and we really actually need to do something. And all these little tricks that they're playing are really of no value when it comes push to shove. So I thought it would be worth listening to a chat that, uh, and one of the things, one of the, I, over the week I've uh, collected a couple of sayings. One of them was um, from the CFMEU, being um, the tip of the sword, that they are the tip of the sword. What a great saying, <laughs> very visual. And out of this particular conversation that uh, or speech that Jack Mansell was having was this uh, saying that don't let the perfect get in the way of the good. What, you know, someone paid to get that slogan um, uh, uh, created to uh, get into your mind uh, how uh, to, to confuse, to confuse. There's always a time when uh, you have to stand at the line. And uh, the next thing we're going to talk to, uh, to is uh, the passing or the uh, legacy of Richard Walcott. And East Timor. And uh, we're going to talk to Peter Job. Now, he wrote a, a great book. Uh, in, uh, it was released in 2021. Uh, it was uh, called um, A Narrative of Denial. And it was his uh, doctorate thesis around uh, it, that became a book um, that meticulously goes through Australia's uh, connection to the Indonesian invasion of East Timor. And um, on the death of Richard uh, Walcott, at the ripe old age of 95, all these different uh, laudable uh, compliments were spread around about him being, you know, uh, a, a class act, the best Australian diplomat of a generation, a giant in diplomatic circles, Diplomatic skills as effective as Australia has ever produced. But of course, this is uh, allowing a ball to go through to the uh, wicketkeeper to use one of these sporting analogies that this type of person likes to bandy about. Because uh, it should be remembered what Richard Walcott should really be remembered for. And so we're going to have a chat with uh, Peter Job, so that uh, the record is set straight. Uh, this is the week that was, is on next, and we then uh, have a quick uh, scurry to the end of the program, a little report from the Palm Sunday Rally for Refugees, and then we're going to finish with something else from, uh, I just couldn't resist, this is from the Marxist Conference. Grace Hill is a socialist activist and the NUS LGBT officer. And she was responsible, really, for setting the fire under Posey Parker because she organised the rally that set off the route of the uh, anti-trans activists posing as a woman's rights uh Activist, you see, even using the word labelling, using you know, suborning leftist and so uh, leftist concepts uh, to a right wing um, uh, agenda. It's uh, we're in Creepyville at the moment. Creepyville, anyway. I will we'll kick off in a minute. 
From Iran to the Americas, the Pacific to Palestine, and here in so-called Australia, people are standing up for freedom and liberation. This May Day at Melbourne State Library, join the Voice of Revolution Iran Melbourne, the Black People's Union, renegade activists, unionists, and people from all over the world as we stand together in understanding that we are all in this together. A lineup of speakers and music from around the world demanding justice and celebrating our common struggles and our common humanity will be announced on the event page soon. You can find the event by searching May Day for Freedom and Liberation on Facebook. May Day for Freedom and Liberation, 5.30pm, Monday 1st of May at State Library, Victoria. A 3CR community radio supporter. Yeah, you'll be with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we will kick off with a chat uh, or a speech given by Jack Mansell, as I said, at the Marxist Conference, which is running right at the moment. It uh, It's on Saturday, it's on Sunday. Uh, big event. It's at Melbourne Uni this year. Uh, it's uh, happening around the old arts building in the centre of the Beast, uh, which is Melbourne University. Uh you can buy tickets, day tickets. You can buy uh, tickets for the rest of the weekend if you want to. Uh, but Jack's uh, Mansell's speech was uh, really quite um, important because it follows up with from a conversation that I had last week with uh, um, uh, Gavin uh, McFadson from the Australian Conservation Foundation around the safeguard mechanism brokered by the Greens with Labor. Uh, it's all terribly important because, you know, we're in a climate emergency. But uh, this is what Jack had to talk about. But It was a talk that was entitled NGOs Getting Paid to Preserve the System. It's not the entire talk. You'll be able to get more of the talk from... Uh, uh, alternative uh, socialist alternatives webpage when they put up all the stuff from the Marxist conference. But uh, let's start off with uh, what I can uh, share this morning. Foundation, which is an environmental NGO at which he held a life membership for his role in the Franklin River Dam campaign in the 80s. And the issue at stake uh, was the ACF's call to urgently pass the Albanese government safeguard mechanism legislation which was a revived, or which is a revived Abbott-era policy that includes, you know, dodgy carbon offset accounting, has no impact on export emissions, and allows companies to increase emissions so long as they also increase production as well. For supporting the legislation, Bob Brown attacked the ACF, as well as the Climate Council, another NGO, as being part of what he said was a Labor-backed lobby to have the Greens vilified for wanting more action against the climate. And notwithstanding the fact that the Greens have now also voted in favour of the legislation, this was the final straw for Bob Brown, who had made similar criticisms of Labor's signature climate bill a few months back. So in response to what Bob Brown said, ACF chief Kelly O'Shaughnessy wheeled out a line that is probably familiar to climate activists, that the safeguard mechanism is a start, not an end, to climate policy in Australia. No details required, but it is a start, just trust her. It's a line that I think could be added to the pantheon of climate uh, pragmatist preachings that includes the adage, don't make the perfect the enemy of the good, uh, regardless of whether something is good or not, actually. Um, And obviously Bob Brown is not some radical calling for the end of capitalism. He spent three years as the Greens leader, propping up a quite right-wing Gillard Rudd government, 
Uh, and his own NGO, the Bob Brown Foundation, organises a mixture of lobbying, court challenges and direct action around individual projects. But he's definitely right about this. I think the stance that the ACF took uh, in support of Labor's bill isn't an anomaly, but it's actually one that was shared by virtually every single climate NGO in Australia. Um, similar kind of statements that combine some mild criticism, uh, but also uh, emphasising the supposed reforms and how much of a victory they are, are virtually, uni uh, virtually universal in the contemporary climate scene. And I think if you were to take the words and tone of the ACF about the safeguard mechanism, and the Greens for that matter, uh, at face value, you'd be forgiven for thinking that we're moving in the right direction on the environment, uh, if a little slowly and that all the government needs is a little nudge uh, to do the right thing and usher in the action that we need. But unfortunately, exactly the opposite is true. So year-on-year year, global carbon emissions are growing. Australia's coal and gas exporters are raking in record profits. So in 2021-22, the supposedly dying fossil fuel industry in Australia, you always hear that, the fossil fuel industry is dying. Why don't we just go to renewables instead? They made windfall profits, so extra profits of $85 billion dollars. Um, and Australia leads the list now of both coal and liquid natural gas exports globally. The Albanese government, which came to power promising the end of the climate wars, whatever that actually means, has approved 116 new fossil fuel projects, including some that even Scott Morrison had banned. I think that situation of an expanding fossil fuel industry is no accident, but is the hallmark of a capitalist system addicted to profits. And that is a system that the ALP is committed to serving. And I think the sort of disjunct between this softly positive rhetoric of the environmental NGO world and the reality of the climate crisis is actually symptomatic of a broader political problem that they have. And that's the thing that I want to kind of unpack. I think what it expresses is uh, the NGO logic of venerating compromise and working with, not against, the very institutions that are responsible for these crimes. So rather than aiming to change the world through fighting against the system... Uh, instead, NGOs see changes coming through a mixture of lobbying, legal challenges, sometimes protests, divestment, awareness raising that aim to compel and convince the powers that be to act in the interests of the planet. I think it's worth saying, the scale of the climate crisis can make this sort of achievable change argument seem quite alluring. I think something or the illusion of something can feel much better than nothing, can feel much better than the kind of doomerism uh, that uh, you know, predominates our generation. So I think for a lot of young people, you know, an NGO with an office, a permanent staff, slick branding, all the rest of it, can seem like a much more legitimate and realistic way of making change uh, than being a fringe radical. But I think the question is, can they make the change that we actually need? And what are the consequences of constantly trying to find compromise uh, and space in the halls of power to achieve climate action. I think what you have to start with is a realistic appraisal of what it will take to deal with the climate crisis uh, and how we can go about doing that. So just to kind of recap some of the key socialist arguments that underpin this analysis, I want to go through them. Firstly, that capitalism and the state cannot solve the climate crisis because it would mean upending the sanctity of the profit motive. Secondly, that greenwashing, so looking like you're doing something to avoid actually doing something, is the new dominant strategy of the ruling class uh, of which the Australian Labor Party epitomises. That genuine climate justice will require confrontation with the ruling class and the profit motive uh, through mass disruptive action and, at the end of the day, through revolution. 
And that fourth, that the role of radicals in this situation should be to clarify all of those things, not constantly obscure the lines of whose side uh, we're on, who's our friend, who's our enemy, uh, and everything in between. So what are environmental NGOs? Uh, you know, it's a big question. It's contested. I think defined broadly, environmental NGOs are organisations with the stated aim of stopping catastrophic climate change, uh, the aim in the more immediate term to get better outcomes in environmental policy. I think organisationally, they tend to take the form of bureaucracies with full-time staff uh, and internal governance structures that are often in line with official charity or registered organisation status. I think sometimes they can have more democratic internal spaces, particularly at the lower campaign levels, but it's also worth saying that most of the campaigns that NGOs run are actually designed by professional uh, NGO uh, people and strategists according to an existing worldview and then are exported out to various different places where people can join in. So that was true of the Stop Adani campaign, something that I was a part of uh, in Sydney. Unlike political parties, NGOs don't try and stand in elections or attempt to form some kind of cohesive alternative uh, political pole of attraction uh, to the status quo. I think what they try and do is influence the existing political parties uh, to be better. Uh, they also don't have a systematic approach to organising any particular social layer, definitely not working class people, uh, in any antagonism to the ruling class, uh, in the way that even a trade union might, despite the limitations of that model as well. So I think, yeah, NGOs see their role uh, as achieving change through compelling powerful institutions to act in a more environmentally friendly way whether that's trying to convince a bank to divest from fossil fuels uh, or to convince the government to adopt more progressive policies. And I think it can lead to a contradiction where NGOs can be both critical of and committed to working with those powerful institutions. And to do that, they embrace a mixture of tactics. So that can include, like I've said, protest and direct action. Um, but I think more commonly encompasses divestment of super or um, banks Lobbying, sending emails to MPs, attending summits, publishing reports, handing out election scorecards where the Greens and Labor look like they're both pretty good, uh, and so on. And I think to NGOs, none of these tactics take po particular political priority over the other because they're all seen as useful ways of influencing power. I think another common strategy of environmental NGOs that can be a bit more difficult to see the problem with is just forming widespread civil society partnerships with businesses, trade unions, political groups, think tanks, all sorts of other um, you know, institutions and groups around a vague need to act on the climate crisis. And I think from this you can say that their politics are liberal because they don't make organisational, political or strategic distinctions based on class and class power but rather on the basis of ideas uh, more commonly presented as values. And to try and understand the way that NGOs look to power, protest, these sorts of things, I spent some time looking through the resources section of their websites. Um, and I think this quote from uh, School Strike for Climate Handbook, obviously School Strike being one of the more activist-facing NGOs, gives you a sense of how even the more activist-based NGOs accept the need to get the rich and powerful on board rather than to fight against them. So I'll quote, businesses, unions, organisations and partner groups have power in your community. They vote in elections, they hold relationships with powerful people and they have skills, money and resources that you could use. Now, I don't think any Marxist is going to disagree that businesses have power in our community. I just think that businesses and the powerful people that they hold our relationships with, and you can throw in the major political parties to that as well, 
are fundamentally committed to the system of profit-making that is causing the climate crisis in the first place. I think whether you appeal to them or whether you fight against them are two radically different approaches to making social change. And so I think to the extent that NGOs do engage in activism, which they do, uh, it's either around individual polluting uh, projects where they say, we're going to make this our cause and we're going to you know, do a bunch of disruption to that, you know, all well and good, or it aims to bolster the lobbying of that NGO. So you have this big demonstration where you can show, look how many people agree with us. Um, and I think the school strike campaign, which was a great improvement on the sort of focus on individual consumption that had dominated mainstream environmentalism, unfortunately suffered this orientation towards lobbying. And in their case, it was towards the ALP, a party which, you know, despite publicly and repeatedly proclaiming their support for the expansion of the fossil fuel industry, enjoys the gloss of being a lesser evil. So I'm old enough to remember standing in Sydney Town Hall Square with tens of thousands of other young people being asked from the front of the rally to get my phone out to text Bill Shorten's office, Bill, will you be our climate saviour? And today, yeah, I know, um, he decided not to respond to us, <laughs> despite our very morally compelling protest. But I think, you know, today, when their school strike movement has waned quite a lot, uh, rather than attempting to sort of rebuild or escalate that level of mass participation, SS4C largely organises smaller actions that fit into the electoral cycle. So there was a few around the last federal election in Sydney, um, meeting up with politicians and so on. Um, and I think now that we have a Labor government, there's actually a notable lack of the sort of combative rhetoric that they used to take towards the, the fossil dinosaur Scott Morrison, um, despite the fact that practically the two parties are indistinguishable um, on any uh, policy points around climate change. It's during the bushfire crisis at the end of 2019 and early 2020. So you've got this year of very positive escalating actions around the climate that not only include mass rallies, but also an increasing number of people who want to throw themselves uh, in the way, stop the fossil fuel industry by putting themselves on the line, you know, the blockade of IMARC being one, the Extinction Rebellion meetings, which every single week in Sydney we had like 50 or 100 new people turning up wanting to get involved in militant climate action. So amidst that situation, the fires broke out. And there was absolutely simmering mass anger. I remember going to the bank and the bank teller being like, what the fuck is going on? Like, when, when do you have that feeling when normality breaks down in such a way that even a bank teller who's, you know, usually told you've got to put your uniform on nice, put your tie up like that and be very sensible. They're the ones saying, what is going on uh, to a random punter on the street? This mass anger. And the NGOs were absolutely nowhere to be seen. They didn't try and organise a single action um, around the crisis. And it came down to a small group in, of socialists in Sydney. I remember the conversation we were having on the street in King Street in Newtown, being like, what the hell is going on? Why has nobody called anything? So we called something and tens of thousands of people showed up. And I think, you know, considering the enormously greater mobilising capacity of the NGO scene, it was... Yeah. Uh, like an abdication of their responsibility to the moment that they were in, that they didn't try and call anything. And a bunch of it was because they would have been criticised in the media like socialists were in Victoria uh, for, you know, taking services, uh, emergency services away from the front lines of the fire. And they did not want to stand up to that. They did not want to damage their respectability um, because in their eyes, the respectability of the movement is the thing that makes it uh, useful at lobbying the government, not its militancy uh, and its mass character. Uh, you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're listening to Jack Mansell at the Marxist conference. He uh, was giving a talk called NGOs Getting Paid to Preserve the System. Uh, this is only excerpts from that talk, but uh, this is the last part. 
All of these things that I've kind of referenced, I want to go through some examples of how this plays out, are exercise conservatising pressures on environmental NGOs, regardless of their starting point. And greenwashing, so the massively accelerating ruling class strategy, which in the last five years even has just become hegemonic, um, is gelling perfectly with the whole strategy and approach that NGOs have. So unlike in the days of climate denialism, there's now this huge maze of negotiating, of compromise, of consultation that's presented by the ruling class as a path to action. Uh, and the NGO world is invited to take their rightful place at the table. You know, now that the powers uh, that be are finally listening to us, all you've got to do is make the right argument and we'll start to see real change, or that's how the logic goes. I think that's not just a meshing of political approaches, uh, but it's a meshing of practice as well. So part of the agenda that the ruling class is putting forward is to organise, like, actual summits, actual panels, inquiries, commissions, all those sorts of things. And each of them, carefully designed to avoid real social change, offers a seat at the table not just to the NGO world in general, but to specific NGO bureaucrats, uh, specific uh, you know, change makers and reps and so on, who get to sit there and be the important person at the table. And so, you know, for a select handful of SS4C members, there was seats at the UN in Geneva to go and make your case about the climate crisis. You know, learn how to be a future leader of society. You know, some of them have got book deals, television appearances. They get to be an anointed person. And I think, needless to say, the life of a radical committed to abolishing the profit motive, destroying one of the biggest industries in the entire capitalist system, should not actually look like that. And I think the impact that that has on people day to day is that it doesn't harden you up against the ruling class. It doesn't harden you up against the halls of power. It makes you soft on them. And so these people become increasingly detached from the world that they might have come from, the kind of mass rallies and stuff like that uh, that might have given school strikes some legitimacy in the first place. I think another way that greenwashing meshes with the NGO approach uh, is the attempt by the ruling class to paint pro-fossil fuel legislation are somehow green, which is totally emblematic of the Albanese government's approach, which is to give the appearance of reforms, um, to reinforce the idea that capitalism is somehow fixing itself, uh, while in the meantime, the fossil fuel industry expands weakly. And I think the strategy of working in those institutions and then being at pains to dress it up as progress actually tends to reinforce those lies rather than expose them. And so, you know, rather than admitting that the whole system is bullshit, that you've been wrong, that everything um, was like a total farce from the outset, I think there's a serious pressure for an NGO activist to portray the outcome of a summit that they've gone and attended as in some way progress, uh, if, of course, it's not enough. I think the argument that just think of how bad it would have been if I wasn't there is commonly used as a justification. But that's a broken logic because it... Tends, it, it means that you tend to dress up things that are by design greenwashing uh, as victories, which I think also justifies continued participation in, them, uh, in the minds of uh, those people. And although this guy's conclusions are simply to accept it as an inevitable fact of life of political organising, this conundrum is something that a high-profile environmental NGO strategist called Laurent Mermet recognised as a consequence of appealing to power. So I, wrote, I read a bunch of his essays. They're fucking fascinating. He said, environmental NGOs tend as a result of that practice to be stuck between attacks on a limited group of actors with a bad public image, e.g. Monsanto bashing, or adopting cooperative language with other actors who may have no actual intention to cooperate. So they can understand the conundrum that they're in. They just can't solve it. 
And so what that looks like in Australia is that the Labor government has got away with the endorsement of not only the Greens, but every single environmental NGO in the country for both their 43% climate target and their safeguard mechanism. That is the political consequence of this practice. That is a huge political victory for a party that is committed to coal and gas and to the mining bosses as well. So the Minerals Council CEO, Tanya Constable, who I actually think is a better metric of whether the fossil fuel industry is being hurt than what the Greens claim is going to happen, she said of the safeguard bill, there will be very little change for the mining industry as a result. Some victory, yeah. And so understanding that the powers that be will never agree to voluntarily give up power and profits associated with fossil fuels is really important. Sitting in the halls of power, at summits, uh, conferences and so on, attempting to compel these people, you know, sometimes very earnestly to compel these people, does nothing but waste valuable energy and effort. Constantly trying to extol the virtues of and participate in partnerships where your supposed partners destroy the planet is a total contradiction that just rubber stamps uh, the ruling class's strategy of greenwashing. I think uh, a recognition of the sort of swindle that's going on with the greenwashing moment is what led Greta Thunberg uh, to boycott last year's COP27 summit in Cairo. She argued that the COPs are mainly used as an opportunity for leaders and people in power to get attention using many different kinds of greenwashing and that the summits are not really meant to change the whole system but instead promote reasonable, i.e. meaningless, progress. Her stance was important because it openly rejected the idea that to make change you have to participate in and accept the structures of power that the ruling class is putting forward. On the thing of like dressing up absolute shit, it's like uh, as progress. I think... It was a, I think it was Martin Luther King was fond of saying during the civil rights movement, if you shove a dagger in my back six inches and pull it out three, it's not progress. I think that should be uh, our yardstick for measuring what is and isn't a reform. And every single reform that's ever been won, not just environmental reforms, but around any social issue, has taken struggle. There's not actually all of this radical protest going on around the environment movement. So we shouldn't expect anything that's doled out by the ruling class uh, to be these like wonderful reforms. I think it will take struggle. And the mining industry will be against the reforms uh, that are put in against them. They won't say, wow, this has really shored up the future of our profitability. Now we can make sensible decisions based on the stability that the Labour Party has ensured. It's like, that won't, that won't be. Maybe, maybe I should get a job as a uh, mining PR spokesman. But, like, that won't be the political landscape when a real reform is being fought for. Um, and I think just on one thing that's come up, like... I think we should be careful not to like, point at the funding uh, avenues as the like, gotcha for why they act in this terrible way because Friends of the Earth, like, they actually disclose all of their um, like, donations and stuff like that. They're very clear about not taking big corporate donations. Uh, they say, like, of course, we don't want to be beholden to corporate interests. That's what the ACF does. But they still do the exact same thing. So it's something uh, more deep about their project um, that makes them act in this way, which is functionally the exact same. And I think one thing is that I don't think that they're all these people in, like, Friends of the Earth. I mean, some of them are a bit cynical and, like, you, you know, get to see how they operate and stuff like that, and they are operators, that's for sure. But I think the more genuinely you think what you're doing is justified, 
the better salesmen you are. So it's not just that they all like, I love the fossil fuel industry secretly. It's that they really believe that what they're doing is making change. But that makes them like ever the more difficult to pin down because if you have a politics which is based on, but these people really care. You can't actually unpack the problems with their politics. So we have to be able to see beneath the kind of, oh, but these people care about the climate, you care about the climate, why are you being so mean to each other? Which definitely comes up in the movements. And understand there's actually something deeper than just the motivations of individuals uh, to act in a certain way that makes their political practice so destructive. Um, So I'll leave it there. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we were just listening to a speech that Jack Mansell made at the Marxist conference and it was entitled uh, NGOs Getting Paid to Preserve the System uh, and we'll be back in two shakes of a lamb's tail. I just want to go home back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Peter Job on the line. G'day Peter, how are you? Good morning Annie, I'm well, how are you? I'm good. Uh, it was great to hear from you. Uh, you are an author of a book called A Narrative of Deceit and that of course is about Australia's connection to the East Timorese in uh, the Indonesian invasion of East Timor. Uh, Richard uh, Wilcox. It's actually called uh, A Narrative of Denial. Of Denial. (laughs) Sorry. By Melbourne University Press. Oh, I'm glad you... um, Sorry. (laughs) That was probably uh, a Freudian slip because I was reading your article about uh, the passing of Richard Wilcott at the ripe old age of 95 who was a diplomat in uh, Australia's diplomat in Indonesia during this whole period. Um, and it's all about deceit, isn't it, really, his uh, uh, tenure there? It is, although it's important to say that, it, that he was not Robinson Crusoe. Uh, Richard Wilcott uh, represented the position of the Australian government and the Department of Foreign Affairs in effectively... Uh, endorsing and not only accepting but actually encouraging the Indonesian intervention and the subsequent 24 years of of brutal occupation. Uh, The research in my book, I believe, demonstrates that had the 
Australian government taken a different approach, there never would have been an invasion. Australia actually initiated uh, the Indonesian decision to invade by encouraging the hardline faction within it to incorporate East Timor. Uh, compared to a, another faction in, in, in the Indonesian government that didn't want to take that approach. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, p- part of the um, outpourings of tributes to uh, Richard Walcott was to say that, uh, you know, highlighting the um, excellent uh, diplomatic work. and But the information coming out of uh, them during the Indonesian uh, debacle was uh, quite poor, wasn't it? It was in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, uh, there, I should explain that there were two factions within the Indonesian government. There was a faction called Opsis that was a hard-line anti-communist faction that, that wished to incorporate Indonesia by force. And there was Adam Malik and the Indonesian Foreign Ministry that were prepared to accept an independent East Timor. Um, the... Australian government, it was initiated by Whitlam, made contact with OPSIS at an early stage to convey to them uh, Whitlam's opinion that East Timor should be incorporated into Indonesia. Um, after, it was only after that that OPSIS approached Sahato to suggest a clandestine program of subversion to undermine the um, decolonisation process uh, instigated by the Portuguese. Um, now, that was not conveyed by the OPSIS. OPSIS provided a whole lot of briefings telling the Australians exactly what they were doing, including uh, a whole range of illegal and lethal activities. They effectively made Australia complicit in their plans by telling them about it, about it beforehand. But one, th- when, one thing they said that wasn't true was that um, Adam Malik also supported that position. Um, they were also uh, delinquent in their understanding in the situation of East Timor. Uh, Walcott, for, uh, for example, co- constantly said to the media and to the Australian government that Fratland was a very small minority, that was the independence movement, was a very small minority of urban uh, Timorese and not supported by the majority of the population that would, sim- would be quickly brushed aside. Now, of course, if anyone with any knowledge of East Timor at the time had actually been there, spoken to Fretland, been to the countryside and spoken to the people, knew that this was completely untrue. So far from far from being brilliant, and I think a, an article in, in, on the ASPE website made that claim, uh, the diplomatic activity under um, Walcott, basically the Indonesians, uh, the Oxford factions, ran rings around him and made Australia complicit in their plans and provided him uh, false information that said... Uh, their agenda. It's horrifying uh, to have it all laid out. How a uh, Australia involved itself in its own personal interests, massaging the facts, and um, Australia, you, as you point out, Australia had a particular context uh, and view of itself, didn't it? That's right. Uh, Australia viewed itself as the. Um, uh, as a representation of Western interests uh, in Southeast Asia. And they, they wanted to push a particular kind of regime uh, into the region. Now, 10 years previously, in 1965-66, they supported the ousting of Sukarno and the decimation of the Indonesian Communist Party, which cost many, many lives. Yeah. Uh, 
the new Sukarno regime represented pro-Western interests that were favourable to Western investment. Uh, there was also, of course, the Timor Sea, but it wasn't only the Timor Sea. I believe that if the Timor Sea resources had not been there, the policy would have been the same because they would have support uh, pro-Western uh, militarist um, autocratic regimes that suited their Cold War agenda at the time and suited Western economic investment. It takes your breath away how um, many people are, were they were prepared to sacrifice for this uh, pathetic uh, investment and power-driven uh, mantra. That's right. I should say I have a new article about this um, uh, in uh, the Declassified Australia, which is a new publication. Uh, it's been it's been around for about a year. It's uh, uh, it's basically it's um, it, it uses archival research and evidence based research to produce articles, and uh, it's, it's well worth uh, paying attention to. It's a, it's it's um, we declassified Australia is very much an evidence based uh, publication. My article there is a, an academic. It's it's written for the general public, but it has a, a list of of sources. And it's very much evidence-based. And you can click on the link if you want to, want to further your own research to find out where I got my information from. Uh, 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 the, the, um, uh, the article is actually called The Diplomat and the Hit List. I think that's probably uh, something you would like to talk about because we're talking about real people here. Amongst the uh, documents, I've, I, I spent um, several years in the National Archives going through all the documentation uh, regarding Australian policy during the uh, um, occupation of East Timor and the period leading up to it. A very significant document that I found a number of years ago uh, was a, a list of prominent Timorese that was handed to the Australian Embassy, to uh, uh, Alan Taylor, who was councillor. Wilcott was his boss, and, and, it, and Wilcott later acknowledged that he saw the document. And it is a list of basically slanders against senior... Uh, Fretland members and a list, and it, and it makes it clear that they will be dealt with. And the phrase you, they use is "when the time comes." This was was handed to an Australian diplomat about three months before the invasion, making it clear to them that uh, effectively they would be in, in, involved in a killing spree to take out these people as soon as they got the chance. This was a part of um, the Indonesian. Uh, intelligence effort to once again to compromise the Australians, to make them complicit, to make to put them in a situation where they would not later be able to condemn the Indonesians because uh, uh, the Indonesians would be able to argue that they'd Australia had, had effectively agreed. Uh, now, the normal course of a behaviour when Australia receives a, a list of senior politicians who are clearly going to be targeted uh, would would you would think would be to do two things. First of all, to protest, and secondly, to warn the people on the list uh, that they would be killed. None of those things happened. It was, it was simply ignored because it didn't suit the Australian policy agenda. And indeed, the, the people who were on the list, who were able to be caught, uh, were subsequently killed. That included, um, for example, Rosa Muki Bonaparte. She was secretary of the popular organisation of Timorese woman. Nicola Lobato, a very prominent Fretland leader who was killed immediately upon his capture. 
and his wife also, Isabel Lopato, was also murdered the day after the invasion. Antonio Cavino, a Fretland writer and poet, he was immediately killed upon his capture, as was his wife, who was also on the list. Uh, there were a number of people who were on the list who escaped. They weren't killed because they were not in East Timor. Jose Ramos Horta was in New York, had escaped to Australia and then to New York at the time. So he, they weren't able to target him. Mari Alcatiri, who became the first prime minister of East Timor, uh, he was in Mozambique, so he survived. And Shinada Guzman was on the list as well, but he retreated to the mountains and led the decades-long resistance to Indonesian occupation. But I have no doubt, had they been captured out after the invasion, they were on the list and they would have been executed too. Uh, moving, uh, I mean, it just takes your breath away, doesn't it? Takes your breath away. Uh, how orchestrated this all was, and and uh, the complicity of our uh, head uh, head of state and uh, the and his minions, the uh, uh, for particular reasons, and pe- and people should take this very cl- uh, as a historical lesson and a future uh, advice for how you would think about ideas around power. Um, Wolcott uh, is really fascinating because as a um, a rather slimy diplomat, he then, who lives a very long time, he uh, then goes through a process of uh, uh, creating a, a web around his actions that would absolve him, in fact. So he he had quite rankles to, uh, into his retirement. Walcott argued that Australians who campaigned for independence and against human rights abuses in East Timor were racist and anti-Indonesian for supporting a lost cause which raises false hopes, prolongs conflict, and costs lives. It's just an outrage. Well, indeed. Well, I was an activist uh, during the occupation myself. I was very much involved, and uh, that was an accusation that was that was often uh, levelled against us, not only by Wilcott, Wil- Wil- but by other politicians. Um, now, of course, it also... Uh, Wilcott wasn't alone. Remember, no. uh, Wilcott was not a dissident who pushed Australian policy into a direction it would not have otherwise gone. On the contrary, he was... Uh, he was, he was highly respected within the foreign affairs community because he supported their position so effectively. Um, he was a skilled politician who carried out the policies of the government, as a school politician uh, is expected to do, and indeed this was the outcome, supporting uh, the, the um, uh, genocide of the Timorese people. About, about a third of the Timorese people uh, died during the occupation. Uh, now, in terms of the in terms of um, a narrative, I call my book a narrative of a denial, Australia and the Indonesian violation of East Timor, because the Australian government, including Wilcott, but also including many politicians, journalists, uh, and others, uh, propagated a false narrative about what was going on in East Timor during the occupation. They denied uh, that atrocities were happening. They blamed the Timorese themselves for what was happening there. Uh, uh, they protected the Fajardo regime, and they worked very hard to get the Timor issue removed from the UN agenda. Um, Australia became basically um, Fajardo's main propaganda outlet um, during that period, and it was quite effective because it was a liberal democracy that was considered that it would 
to have uh, knowledge of his team or due to its uh, proximity. Yeah, uh, and I didn't realise uh, that there was forced a forced famine. Uh, starvation was set upon the East Timorese by the uh, Indonesians, and this was part of the denial. Well, that's right. Uh, during the during the the first years uh, after the invasion, the Indonesians were not very effective in gaining control of the whole territory. Prevalent was well armed and it was well supported by the populace. It retreated to the mountains and in the first year effectively established a fairly well-functioning society with, with sufficient food resources. Um, Indonesia um, undertook a program of what you called encirclement and uh, annihilation to destroy Fretland, but they decided that to destroy Fretland, they had to destroy food resources and uh, undermine the civilian population and force them to move to camps, and indeed that's what they did. They used aircraft. They used uh, American-supplied uh, Bronco aircraft. We now know... My own research has indicated that they also used Australian-supplied Nomad aircraft during the operation, probably for surveillance. Um, uh, this had... They, they defoliated crops. Uh, they bombed villages. Um, they forced the population to move down from the mountains to... Um, concentration camps, effectively, where many people, where there wasn't enough food and many people starved. Uh, and that way they were able to undermine the uh, uh, society that Fretland was, had effectively created and uh, force the surrender of many Fretland operatives. Although, of course, Fretland never completely surrendered. It was there till the end. Um, yeah, I'll leave uh, the... Um, people should go to your article... Uh, because it's a fascinating read and you have um, uh, curated it beautifully so pe people can actually glean the key pieces of information. But it should I'd like to finish with uh, people realising that in retirement, in the mid-90s, Wilcott, Richard Wilcott became a consultant to resource giant BHP on seabed matters. BHP had long prospected for uh, oil and gas in the Timor Sea. And in 1999, it commenced exploration of the Buffalo oil field under Timor's seabed. So bread buttered, uh, no remorse. Indeed, and, uh, at a very early stage before the invasion, uh, Woolcott was quick to point out that uh, it would be in Australia's interests they would be more likely to obtain uh, control of the Timor Sea resources uh, by doing a deal with the Indonesians, then by an independent East Timor, that was, and that was certainly, part of, and that was what he said before the invasion. He then went on to to uh, gain a lucrative position, and he wasn't the only one. There were there were many uh, who who did the same. Those uh, Timor Ale Alexander Downer and Woodside. That's right, indeed. <laughs> Thanks very much for talking to us this morning, Peter Job. Uh, can you tell me, tell my listeners the name of the book as well as the um, article, where it's written? The name of the book is A Narrative of Denial, Australia and the Indonesian Violation of East Timor. It's available from Melbourne University Press and all good bookshops, of course. Uh, the name of the article is in Declassified Australia. It's called The Ambassador and the Hit List. Thanks, mate. Uh, thanks very much.
From Iran to the Americas, the Pacific to Palestine, and here in so-called Australia, people are standing up for freedom and liberation. This May Day at Melbourne State Library, join the voice of Revolution Iran Melbourne, the Black People's Union, renegade activists, unionists, and people from all over the world as we stand together in understanding that we are all in this together. A lineup of speakers and music from around the world demanding justice and celebrating our common struggles and our common humanity will be announced on the event page soon. You can find the event by searching May Day for Freedom and Liberation on Facebook. May Day for Freedom and Liberation, 5.30pm, Monday 1st of May at State Library, Victoria. A 3CR community radio supporter. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when some weak-kneed, capitulating commie greenies oblivious of the threat to Trubler Wazzy security from all those evil US of the UN of the US of the world train killer bases all across the Pacific, well, all across the world, carry on about... Oh, hang on, hang on. They're on our side, or rather, we're on their side. Good, good US of bases. Sorry, sorry. Oblivious to all those evil China train killer bases all across evil China. Carry on about the costs of nuclear killers required to attack those evil bases. Uh, evil, evil China. Could, could you put off doing anything silly for, say, 30 years? The costs which we pointed out last week are $38 million a day for those 30 years. The long-haired, greeny, Neville Chamberlain capitulation clones claiming $38 million a day for 30 years could do wonders for public assets and responsibilities. What use state-of-the-art public housing, transport, health, education, indigenous closing the gap, livable welfare incomes, a clean environment, to name a few, when we face such a threat? And if anyone doubts that, just ask the US of. As a senior US of trained killer told us this week, we must send the new killers for which we are paying the US of merchants of death trillions to support the US of if it goes to war with evil China. Or should that be when? Showing how out of touch those anti-war wimps are and they were put in their disgraceful, perfidious place by the minister for being offensive and trained killing Richard Malls, the bad guys, who told us the 368 billion and rising bill was unremarkable, leaving us to ponder what he might consider remarkable. The capitulation gets worse as a survey shows most true blue Aussies oppose any tax increases to pay for all this. Don't they realise feeling secure doesn't come cheap? And across the ditch, the New Zealand shadow minister, the more conservative party, agreed with their wimpy, compy, commie government that its anti-nuclear policy meant true blue Aussie use of new, new killers would be banned, or US of new killers would be banned from New Zealand waters. New Zealand opposed the train killer language dividing the Pacific, he said. How gutless. As the possibility of evil China mediating to resolve the Ukraine war, or sorry, military exercise, encouraged by the European Union, the US of choked on its nuclear arsenal at such madness, pointing out that unlike the US of, evil China could not possibly mediate because it had taken sides. This is one of those sadly increasingly regular occasions where satire simply can't compete. 
Meanwhile, as the screaming crowd cheered Richard Moore's The Bad Guys as some socialist god when he introduced the by-election winner Saturday night, I thought... What a progressive, warmonger, socialist god, spending trillions on killing people, his tongue covered with USL big supremo Joe Biden capital's boot polish. And then the caring business class party and its supremo constable Peter Duffer said it must maintain our principles and values like you know. And I thought, very smart, Pete, because they're the very principles and values that got you into this mess in the first place like you know. But Pete showed what a quick little learner he is by maintaining the support for the terrenilious people, or well, non-people, he displayed so warmly as a Queensland <coughs> a copper and turning his back on the apology to the stolen generation, which incidentally, Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist informs us were never stolen in the first place. Although Pete said that, turning his back, may have been a bit of a mistake, like you know. And underlining what a quick little learner he is by telling, telling us he supports giving the terrenilious people a voice by voting no to giving the terrenilious people a voice. But clarifying the logic by also pointing out he is not denying the terrenilious people a voice because by definition the terrenilious people are terrenilious and therefore non-people and so he is not anti-terrenilious because being because there are no people to be anti of. After all, it's the socialist's fault. We can't blame Pete fault for not giving Pete the detail he needed after they gave him the detail he needed after they gave him the detail he needed, after, if but for the detail, Pete would have said a resounding yes. And goodness me, didn't the no announcement come like a bolt from the blue? As the caring business class party tears itself to shreds, analysing why nobody loves it, wonder if they've considered the incongruity of asking the Tubular Aussie people to vote as Big Supremo a Queensland copper. And given, since his ascension to the Supremo throne, we're now seeing the new warm, cuddly Pete, the mind boggles at what he'd be like if it's not worth thinking about. As, quote, the housing crisis, the rental crisis, the homelessness crisis worsen, only the Troubler Wazzy Capitalist Review could run a disturbing, indeed a distressing article highlighting the real crisis created by rising interest rates. Poor, poor landlords are doing it tough. Unless you want to be reduced to tears, listener, I recommend you don't read the article. Because the housing, rental, homeless crises are resolved. Thanks to that esteemed contributor to social advance, global economic behemoth EY for eating your money, which announced that build to rent by the socially conscious developers would solve the problem. The silver bullet eating your money declared. So it must be the panacea with just one minor condition. Governments must come to the party with tax concessions for those who don't pay tax in the first place and lots of corporate welfare allowing the private sector to do what it does best. Enjoy not paying tax and enjoy welfare from the taxes of those who can't avoid paying their tax. Uh, so this will solve the problem for people who can't afford the spiralling rents. Certainly, as long as they can afford the rent, uh, which will be cheaper, 
Good God, no. We have to get a fair return on our investment. Uh, so what's the benefit? Clearly the benefit is we are providing affordable rentals for those that can afford the rent. Wouldn't it be better if the tax concessions and corporate welfare were spent on public housing? Oh dear, what goddamn universe have you been living in? No one builds public housing anymore. Governments know what used to be public housing is better off with the efficiency of the private sector. Uh, but, but the rents are higher. Come on, you can't expect the private sector to subsidize the undeserving. They have to get a return on the government's investment. And the Community Former Public Housing Privatised Association, which is big-hearted enough to run the former public housing, handed to it, enthusiastically backed the eating your money, gen the, your generous offer. It would be a boon to the people to whom it devotes itself. Um, but how can they afford the much higher rentals, which are why they are the people to whom you devote yourself? It will teach them to be more responsible. Our experience is that so many of these people whom we so care about are not responsible. You mean not responsible for being poor and facing a roof over their head crisis? Exactly. So there, problem solved. As long as the government accepts its important role, more so its responsibility, which explains why the homeless in their gutters are whooping it up this Easter. Over in the US, we were made aware by that country's most reliable and accurate source, judges and prosecutors and their partners and children and mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers and nephews and nieces all hate former big supremo Donald Trample the poor because they are all anti-American commies who detest their country. A country whose only salvation from the commie greedy attack on liberty, freedom and democracy lies in Donald Trample the poor, who nonetheless, unfortunately, let's hope not, but unfortunately, may have to check whether the presidential desk can fit into a prison cell. The Zion train killers got into the ecumenical spirit of Easter, Ramadan and Passover by raiding the Alaska Mosque and bashing the proverbial out of the congregation. Uh, yes, why did you bash the proverbial out of them and wreck the joint? Because they threw things at us. Uh, but, but they threw things at you because you'd raided the mosque. Exactly. This shows how our raid was essential to bash the proverbial out of these terrorists. As a result, Hamas fired a few penny bungers towards Zion, forcing Zion to bomb the shit out of them, showing again how evil these terrorists are and how peaceful and gentle and caring are Zion and its bristling with weapons of mass destruction trained killers. For what could be more terrifying than people throwing things just because you're bashing the proverbial out of them? Any wonder a Zion minister says the non-people should be erased from this planet and long-haired commie greenies couldn't object because like Constable Duffer with the terrenulius non-people, they would not be erasing real people. Even so, the US of would show its respect for human rights, well in this case non-human rights, by urging the rapidly disappearing non-people to show restraint, thus Finally, we leave Constable Duffer washing his hands after nailing the terra nullius non-people to a cross, clarifying they are not being nailed to because they are not people to be nailed to. No, like you know, 
he sage wisely, if that not be a tautology, or even if it is. No, 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 no. Although, hard as it is to believe, Pete seems to have overlooked the minor fact that in that other case, the victim came back again bigger than ever. Good morning. <laughs> Kevin, uh, this is the week that was. Uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and uh, we're going to move to a piece from the Palm Sunday rally, which, of course, Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Easter. It's uh, when Jesus came, apparently, uh, to uh, big uh, roars of appreciation from crowds who laid down um, uh, branches of palms for his donkey to walk through. Um, that's why they call it Palm Sunday Rally. And it was for refugees. Uh, and uh, the main message was around uh, the... Uh, the 12,000 uh, refugees who have been overlooked in the government's fast-track system. 19,000 have been through the fast-track system. Or rather, actually, that was another element that came out, which was that uh, it's the fast-track is apparently a misnomer. It moves as slow as honey. Um, and 12,000 uh, people, mostly Tamils and Iranians, as far as I could make out from the rally, who have been overlooked uh, without explanation. Uh, but the bit that we're going to hear is from Margaret Sinclair. She's from RAC, that's uh, Refugee Action Collective, and also Doctors for Refugees. And uh, she's talking about the people that have been left in Indonesia uh, because they cannot be, they are not being processed, and uh, she makes a call for Australia to stand up and uh, do the right thing. Thank you. So my name is Margaret Sinclair. I'm with the Refugee Action Collective, and I acknowledge that we are meeting and, and rallying on the lands of of the traditional owners of the Kulin Nations. Uh, on behalf of Refugee Action Collective, first of all, we do have an action outside the Sofitel Hotel tomorrow evening instead of our usual meeting because Claire O'Neill will be giving the keynote address and we need to let Labor know that um, they need to do much, much better than what they are doing. So last year, Ian Rintel from Sydney Rack and myself went to Indonesia on a bit of a fact-finding mission. Uh, I guess... Um, uh, First of all, a little bit of background. We need to remind ourselves that the situation there has um, has been going on for a very long time. So when Scott Morrison was the Immigration Minister in 2014, he put a ban on anyone, uh, any refugee in Indonesia who had registered with the UNHCR after July uh, 2014 from ever coming to Australia. That's under the humanitarian program and that's under the sponsorship program. Uh, he also reduced the numbers of people that Australia would accept. And so Indonesia has become not so much a transit country, but a place of limbo. Instead of spending a very short time in Indonesia, many refugees have been languishing there a very long time. We met refugees who had been promised under the Gillard government that if they did not attempt to come to Australia by boat, that they would be given priority under the humanitarian program. Well, they're still there in Indonesia because I met them last year. So that promise needs to be kept. 
But also, we also need to understand that this place of limbo is a place where they have no rights. Now, when we were gathered outside the State Library, there was a man who was quite angry and came up and said, why can't people stay in Indonesia? Well, I'll tell you why, because they're not allowed to. Indonesia is not a country that welcomes refugees. It is not a signatory to the Refugee Convention. It does not want refugees there. It does not want refugees to stay. And so the whole um, deterrence program that Australia has in place is actually in place in Indonesia as well, very much so. Two-thirds of the people in Indonesia, the refugees there, come under the International Organisation for Migration um, when it comes to uh, having a very basic living, um, living expenses covered. But for those people, those children who aged in place, uh, I met people who were in their mid-twenties who were still on the child's allowance, which is $50 a month. It's not enough money. And the amount of money that, that refugees receive through IOM has not changed in over a decade, even though the cost of living has um, risen, especially over the past few years. So we've got people who have not got the right to work, have not got the right to study, who have very limited access to um, medical care, who have had medical treatment refused because IOM, the International Organisation for Migration, which is 100% funded by the Australian government, refuses to pay for it. We have people who arrived before that July 2014 ban and their families arrived afterwards. So you know, they might be allowed to resettle in Australia. They might get a small pittance from IOM, but their families do not. And they are split along this arbitrary line that Scott Morrison created, that uh, the Liberal leaders ever since have kept in place and Labor leaders have also kept in place. And so um, we really need to have that ban lifted. In fact, people have been there for so long and UNHCR can't see any resettlement opportunities for these people that they have been, UNHCR have told refugees that they will not interview them, that they will not process their claims because there's no hope for resettlement. People can't live without hope. We need to give people hope. And the way that we need to do it is we need to challenge the idea of Operation Sovereign Borders. Operation Sovereign Borders was put in place a military solution to a humanitarian crisis. People leave their home countries because there's a humanitarian crisis. In leaving, that's a humanitarian crisis. And now they have been in limbo right across the archipelago of Indonesia for more than a decade, and that is a humanitarian crisis. We don't need a military solution to a humanitarian crisis. It's the wrong solution. It's just another problem. We need a humanitarian answer to a humanitarian problem. And that humanitarian answer is the following. One, to lift the ban that Scott Morrison put in place for July 2014. Two, we need to drastically, drastically lift the humanitarian intake to at least half the numbers of, of people who are there each year. There's 14,000 people there. 7,000 of them are Hazara. But we need an Australian government that accepts all nationalities. So we need to have, you know, 7,000 people a year, lift that humanitarian intake, 14,000 people a year. For the number of people who are there in Indonesia, it equates to the number of people that 
Australia did not take during the COVID lockdowns. 14,000 people brings us up to scratch. It gets them out of limbo, it gives them hope. So we need to call on the Labor government to lift the ban, to lift the intake and to stop the rhetoric because we do not need to have a military and harmful response to people who are in a humanitarian crisis. Thank you, thank you very much. And that was Margaret Sinclair for RAC, a refugee action collective, talking about those stranded in Indonesia and uh, what Australia needs to do. That was at Palm Sunday Rally for Refugees. Three CR Community Radio Eight Five Five I am. with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're coming up, coming up to the last part of the program and uh, probably a, a more uh, happy note really because uh, we're going to hear from Grace Hill. Grace Hill was speaking on the opening night of Marxist Conference this year and uh, the reason why is because uh, uh, Grace is the socialist, she's a socialist activist and she's the NUS, the National Union of Students LGBT officer and uh, she was uh, part of the organising group that uh, uh, did the fight back against racism, the far-right war and the bosses' offensive, um, which was the talk that they were having at Marxism on Thursday. Uh, but she was uh, behind the um, the rallies against Pogi pa- uh, Posey Parker, the anti-trans um, speaker who uh, was routed effectively. But anyway, uh, she gave a rousing speech and it's worth listening. Um, well, people uh, would probably have observed that the far right um, is growing and growing around the world. Um, it's been winning elections. Um, it won the election in Italy, so the leader of that country now is part of a political party that traces its lineage uh, back to Mussolini. Um, the far right have made electoral gains in Sweden, all across Europe, their um, ideal uh, refugee policies, even in places uh, where they are not in government, are being implemented, um, often uh, as mainstream right-wing parties um, concede uh, to their politics. And in fact, uh, also often uh, directly mimicking Australia's own uh, racist politics of cruelty. And increasingly around the world, the far right are focusing on anti-trans politics as their culture war issue uh, of choice. And they're drawing on old homophobic tropes, the same tropes that were wheeled out uh, against gays and lesbians in the 80s, claiming that children are being recruited into transgenderism um, and that there's some kind of nefarious campaign to corrupt changing rooms and toilets um, for ill purposes. So it's the exact arguments that were wheeled out against gay people decades ago. Shame. And the far... Yeah, shame, indeed. Um, The far right, um, it must be said, stand for reinforcing absolutely every oppressive hierarchy, taking every oppression that exists in capitalism to its most extreme. And I think we got a clue, um, uh, uh, looking into uh, what they're about um, through the pandemic with their take-up of anti-vax politics, that we can see that at their heart, what they want is a world where capitalist interests prevail over all else, where the right to make a profit should over
millions of people to life and health. And in their efforts to recruit and mobilise more and more people around their projects, they run campaigns targeting oppressed groups. And we now see them targeting transgender people while cynically claiming to be defenders of women. And in some places, they're actually having quite a lot of success with this project. So in the United States, um, there are now hundreds of pieces of anti-trans legislation moved every year. The far right have spent decades getting themselves into a position to do this, clawing their way into mainstream American politics and campaigning for years against women's rights, finally succeeding in overturning Roe versus Wade, which is one of their long-term goals. And now they're campaigning to regress all legal rights and all social gains that trans people have made. And here in Australia, um, our own uh, domestic right-wingers, um, homegrown right-wingers, are taking up anti-trans campaigning with gusto too. So Sky News uh, runs segments um, on it every day. I watched one just the other day that was a two-parter. First part, um, condemning the strikes in France. Second part, <laughs> alerting everyone um, to the transgender uh, menace. Um, liberal politicians are taking up the cause. Um, every single far-right micro-party there is campaigns in elections on the basis of protecting children. Um, and who could forget One Nation? Um, in the, yeah, boo, <laughs> in the, the small amount of time that they have left over um, uh, after they spend most of it attacking Aboriginals every two seconds, um, they have been moving uh, bills to equate teaching about trans issues to pedophilia and arguing that trans people should have their children removed. <laughs> and One Nation uh, politician, Mark Latham, has made it very clear recently with his slew of disgusting homophobic tweets, um, just as uh, Kelly J. Keane, the Visiting UK transphobe, made clear um, when her tour was paid for uh, by the right-wing uh, political campaign group CPAC, uh, most famous for its campaigning um, actually against abortion rights, that for, for creeps like these people, transphobia is the tip of the iceberg. All of these right-wing bigots also had gays, also had lesbians, and are campaigners um, against the rights of women, and are basically campaigners against every socially progressive thing that's taken place in the last 50 years. So these people are fighting for a world where every oppression is taken to its most extreme, uh, where the working class are totally subjugated and where all of our wins on social justice are rolled back. So all of that is kind of um, <laughs> grim, <laughs> but um, what I want to talk to you guys about is that in Australia we've recently had a really important victory. So that UK transphobe, Kelly J Keane, some of you might have seen her on social media, on her um, uh, kind of online pseudonym, uh, Posey Parker, was sent packing from yeah. Australia. <laughs>
And fortunately, this year, socialists have fought for and won the LGBTI officer position in the National Union of Students, and had also before this spent years and years building up campaign groups around the country to fight homophobia and to fight transphobia. And so we used this position and also all of these campaign groups to call a successful campaign of protests across the country. So the right we're going to say it's a communist plot. A little great. <laughs> so all of these right-wing bigots, right, they claim that they're representing um, a silenced and oppressed uh, majority of uh, people um, who are uh, silenced, browbeaten by um, a fringe. We decided that we were going to show up um, and show up that for the lie that it is and outnumber them with counter-protests everywhere they went. And after Keynes tour was uh, matched uh, in Sydney, outnumbered in Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth, we saw uh, the Melbourne Stop of Her tour where a group of about 20 neo-Nazis attended her event. So people would have seen the now infamous pictures um, that were just plastered uh, in every newspaper on every news website um, of these fascists sing highly at the edge of her protest um, on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House. So we routed her event here in Melbourne and the results of this counter-protest campaign and of the exposure of the fascists in uh, their ranks has had an absolutely huge political fallout. So the presence of Victorian Liberal MP uh, Moira Deeming um, at the event um, and uh, her unapologetic um, appearance on Keane's uh, livestream debrief of the protest, even after they'd seen uh, all of the Nazis, um, sent the Liberal Party into a spin. <laughs> so the leader here, John Pastuto, attempted to expel Deeming from the party room, citing not only her decision to stay after the neo-Nazis had arrived, but her presence at the transphobic event itself. But the right wing of the party uh, managed to dis defeat that expulsion attempt, and Deeming uh, will only be suspended for nine months. So the rally uh, really pulled at the internal tensions um, in the party between the people who now make up the large part of their membership and volunteer base who are socially reactionary um, freaks um, and more moderates who think the party should just focus on sensible things like supporting businesses against workers rather than just fighting um, kind of pointless culture wars. So this scandal has really just basically taken a torch and shot it right on um, the state of the Victorian LNP and that it is a hopeless freak show and has added to all their political woes. And the consequences of what we've done have not been limited to the Liberal Party. Um, as recently as the start of this year, the Labor Party were saying that they still intended to pursue the Religious Discrimination Bill, which people would remember when Scott Morrison did it the year before and there was a huge amount of outrage, well, they want to bring it back. Um, and it would entrench the right of employers to discriminate against trans workers as well as against uh, gay people and women. But you have to think the future of this bill is a little less certain now. Um, if it is something that is revived, it would potentially be um, harder to pass without comment and without resistance. And in an incredibly positive uh, development, the unions in Victoria have now been drawn more seriously into the fight for trans rights. 
So initially, actually, um, when uh, some union backing was requested for the counter-protest against uh, Keane, um, that request was knocked back. But after the success of the counter-protest, the widespread anger at the presence of the far right and the increased spotlight um, on this issue, um, that changed and the unions backed what was a fantastic mass demonstration. So there were thousands and thousands of people who were not at the first counter-protest but were moved by it to act. And they acted um, in actually what I think was probably the largest ever demonstration for trans rights in Australia. <laughs>
Where we can, we want to be drawing attention to what these people represent. We want to outnumber them, we want to demoralise them, and we want to draw more and more people, as many as we can, into our side of the fight. Campaigning that takes up transphobia as a feature of contemporary far-right politics, campaigning which links trans oppression with women's oppression and gay oppression can be effective. And the foundation for campaigns like this one against Keynes Tour is the socialist left. It was socialists who called these demos. It's socialists who always have a perspective of trying to draw people into protest action as opposed to trying to find some uh, legal manoeuvre or trying to wait for some larger institution or the state to take action. It's socialists who recognise the connection between the far right, between oppression and capitalism. And it's socialists who know that our side's strength um, is in mobilisation, is in organisation. And it's socialists that, we, that know that if we don't fight, we will always lose. But if we do fight, it is possible to win. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.